Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran. A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. You're a doc. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. You're saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recreation. No wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect to open yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot? Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Jen Perkachi. I'm your host, and this is the Cannabis Hour, which is a bi-weekly radio program where we focus on all things cannabis. I have the esteemed Hannah Nelson joining me today. We're going to be discussing the vegetation modification letters that uh, many cultivators in the uh, legal cannabis program have received here in Mendocino County. And before we dive into that, I have a couple announcements to make here. The first one is from the wonderful Mendocino Producers Guild. Come join us on April 23rd for the Mendocino Producers Guild Farmers Market in Laytonville, right off the 101 from 10 to 4. There will be over 20 cannabis farmers, as well as arts, medicine, food, and a beautiful smoking lounge in the Oaks. This is a time to share our stories, our solidarity, our vision, and to experience the small craft community. Rejoice in our culture and take the opportunity to purchase some of Mendocino's most unique local wares at farm direct prices. Come on down and smoke a dube with your favorite sun-grown farmers. To learn more, visit our website, mendocinoproducersguild.org. That's guild as in G-U-I-L-D. Sign up there if you are interested in being a vendor or you want more information about our four markets this year. If you are not a Mendocino County resident, Please still do fill out the vendor information for we are already taking names for the Emerald Games. So more information is also available by emailing mendopg at gmail.com. That's mendopg at gmail.com. And that website again is mendocinoproducersguild.org. I also wanted to make an announcement this morning about the Emerald Cup. Um, and it's, it's Small Farmers Initiative, which is a program that was introduced at the recent Harvest Ball in 2021. It provides resources and access to 10 small craft legacy farmers, those who have helped build the industry from the ground up. As a continuation of the initiative that took place in the fall, um, the Harvest Ball opened, or the um, Emerald Cup opened 10 sponsored entry spots for small farmers from heritage producing regions to participate in the 18th annual Emerald Cup competition without cost. And that competition is taking place in Los Angeles in May. These entries were offered through the Small Farms Initiative and were allocated to members of the community that have been impacted by the craft cannabis crisis. They were selected through a lottery. 
and 10 farms were sponsored to submit a single product to any category of the competition. And they were also given two tickets to attend the Emerald Cup Awards in LA. And the 10 selected participants um, are Terabella from Humboldt, Bud and Lather from Humboldt, Green Hummingbird Farm from Nevada County, Lost Paradise Organics from Mendocino County, Soul Spirit Farm from Trinity County, Mendocino Family Farm from Mendocino County, Noble Gardens from Lake County, Spring Creek Farm from Sonoma County, Sunroots Farm from Mendocino County, and Sunabis from Humboldt County. So all 10 of those small farms were sponsored to receive a free product entry to any category of the competition of the Emerald Cup in LA. So can't wait to see what they brought to the table. And the 18th annual Emerald Cup Awards will be taking place in conjunction with the Green Street Festival, May 13th and 14th of this year. There are over 7,000 expected attendees and special performances by Juicy J and Friends, Gary Vaynerchuk and Harry Mack and many more. And cannabis will certainly be the headliner. So if you want to check out this inaugural event taking place down in LA, get more information at theemeraldcup.com. That's theemeraldcup.com. And I know we all look forward to seeing how the Small Farmers Initiative will continue in the future. So on that note, I have Hannah Nelson here with me. Hannah, are you here with us on the air? I am. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Hannah, you are so busy. So I want to say, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate your presence here. Um, Hannah is, oh yes. Hannah is a very esteemed member of our community and she does so much to assist us legally in the cannabis world. Um, she's been on the show so many times with me, you know, most often we're talking about policy and what's going on with regulated cannabis. But I realized yesterday when I was speaking with her that we know so little about Hannah and her background. So we're going to take the time to do a little Q&A with her here at the beginning of the show in honor of Women's History Month, as today is the final day of Women's History Month. Um, which actually began in Sonoma County, California in 1978, when the school district there participated in Women's History Week. So Hannah, you are a wonderful woman in our community and you contribute so much. So I want to give our listeners some background on you. So would you take a moment and just um, introduce yourself to our listeners as you would like them to know you? Uh, What is your formal title? Is it attorney at law? Uh, Yeah, it's Hannah Nelson, attorney at law. I've been an attorney for about 30 years. I have done predominantly cannabis uh, legal work, but I also have done a few other uh, areas of law in my career, including a long time ago, some sequel work and some environmental work uh, when I was a partner in a law firm with some other attorneys and uh, a lot of civil rights cases and but most interestingly my 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 history goes back to uh, a very young age and a time when I got interested in law through um, work on political prisoner trials and through political demonstrations in New York City 
And from that work, I kind of uh, started working at the Legal Aid Society of New York City, um, which is kind of equivalent to legal aid here. And um, in those days, it was a lot more robust in terms of social services. And I worked uh, with an Attica brother who was leading the charge and getting wraparound diversion services to people of coming coming out of prison or diverting them from uh, the criminal justice system. And then with a legal aid attorney in criminal court. And that really spurred my desire to eventually go into law. I didn't know it would take so long for me to eventually get there, um, but I decided it was an important thing for me to have a background in social work before I went to law school. So I was in fact a social worker for many years and in, worked in the courts uh, as a social worker, as well as doing employment social services um, for many years before I was an attorney. Sorry, you just asked me to introduce myself and I launched into my history. That's quite all right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I have a few questions based on what you said. So you mentioned that you got interested in law in New York and that you were a social worker. So where were you a social worker? Was that here in California or was that somewhere else in the country? Yeah, it was here in uh, California. I actually uh, originally went to college at uh, UW-Madison and uh, was in a joint degree program for my undergraduate and graduate work in social work and then uh, wound up having to leave uh, school at some point for some medical stuff and eventually returned to school at UC Berkeley and uh, had worked along the way as a social worker, both in Madison and then uh, in the Bay Area. I uh, did a lot of, of different social work jobs in the Bay Area, both in the East Bay and in San Francisco for, for quite a few years, and eventually winding up working in the courts uh, as a supervisor for the Berkeley OR project, which was to release people on their promise to appear. Wonderful. And where are you from originally, Hannah? New York. Oh, boy. Bringing us that East Coast hustle out here on the West Coast. And what pulled That's you right, into... That's right, in... Yes, and we need it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, go I ahead. moved to what California in 1985. I moved to California in 1985. Okay. And from there, you went on to study at uh, UC Berkeley. Is that correct to finish your degree? Um, yeah, not right away. I was working and uh, working as a social worker. And then eventually I returned to school and finished up my degree and uh, eventually went to law school in San Francisco. So what pulled you towards cannabis law? And how long did you practice law before you decided that you wanted to focus on cannabis? <laughs> well, actually, it's um, there's a wonderful attorney uh, named Richard Ingram in Sonoma County. 
And by the way, that was really interesting to learn that Women's History Month started in Sonoma County. Uh, anyway, Rich is responsible for uh, my coincidental uh, focus on cannabis. And uh, I was a member, a longtime member of a, a group called the National Lawyers Guild, even before I was a lawyer and particularly involved as a board member of that group and focusing on training people for nonviolent training at political protests. Uh, and when I went to law school, my criminal procedure professor recognized me from a newsletter and we had never met, even though we were both on the board of NLG and that was Rich Ingram. And he and I became uh, close, and he's an excellent, excellent teacher. Um, and uh, coincidentally, a friend of mine lived on his property, and I didn't know it. Anyway, a lot of coincidences. At some point during law school, uh, through the law clinic at USF, I was working on a forfeiture case, and I had some questions. So I called up Rich and said, hey, I've got these questions. And he said, well, I don't do that kind of stuff. I only do the criminal stuff, but here's the name of a guy. And by the way, he's the guy that I told you a couple of years ago, you should really work with. You would love working with him and you would love working together. And that person that he referred me to was Ron Sinaway up in Humboldt County. And through that introduction, Ron and I, forged a lovely working relationship. I wound up moving up to Humboldt County right after law school and working with him. Unfortunately, Ron suffered a stroke after a year and I continued on in our practice until uh, Ron's former law partner came back from a long trip that he was on sailing around the world and convinced me and another person to become partners in what became Pacific Justice Center. And half of our work was environmental law and half of it was the criminal and civil rights work and forfeiture work that I did. And uh, we carried on the Pacific Justice Center for many years together. And then eventually uh, I went off and did other things and we all split apart. So when you say forfeiture law, are you talking about like, let's say somebody's cannabis farm gets busted and, you know, the cops seize a bunch of their cars and things like that, and they're trying to get them back in yes. layman's terms? Is that for forfeiture law? Yes, yes, absolutely. All the, uh, absolutely. Cash, physical assets. And um, some of the cases that I handled uh, in the 90s sometime early mid-90s, uh, involved some appellate cases where at a certain point there was a lapse in forfeiture laws. The forfeiture law in California was due to sunset, and it did, and the legislature did not reenact it. So uh, I had a case that I took up on appeal and then joined with a couple of other attorneys who had other cases on appeal, and we went and basically got all the forfeiture cases thrown out for a period of time because we paid attention and saw that the forfeiture laws had lapsed. 
separately from that, we also eventually were successful in getting the law changed so that it required a, a, a greater uh, level of proof before forfeiture could occur. So uh, there was a lot of work that I did in the early days on, on forfeiture. That was a lucky time for those folks when that law was um, not in existence, I imagine. And I'm sure you had a lot of very interesting experiences in the 90s um, up in Humboldt County working on those kinds of cases. Yeah, it was actually, I, I worked all over the place. I mean, I, I, one of my biggest cases was here in Mendocino County. I was the attorney who got the first court order returning medical cannabis back to the patient. And I went up to the California Supreme Court and back down. Um, that was the Brown case. And um, I fought that case for about three years. I did it pro bono and was the first person ever to walk out of a law enforcement office with cannabis. That was, that the, was a wonderful transition. Started, yeah, oh, that was that, that case started... Uh, I think uh, a couple of days after the uh, Prop 215 passed. Yes, you did a wonderful transition there, Hannah, because I was just about to ask you um, what is one of your greatest law victories. And I had done a little reading on your website before the show, and I thought that this is probably what you would say. But yeah, that seems like it was a huge landmark case. Um, can you share anything more with us about that? I mean, I'm sure it was an amazing feeling when you were successful in getting that medical cannabis returned for that patient. Yeah, I can share a little bit. There there are some kind of interesting, peculiar side stories on the personal level uh, surrounding that case. One is that um, law enforcement was not happy about this at all. And in fact, the day that my client and I were set to go ahead and finally pick up the cannabis inspected and pick it up, they pulled some trickery and kept changing the location of where the uh, pickup was going to be. And there were going to be press there. So in fact, um, that's why they kept changing it. At any rate, uh, another little interesting blip is uh, my law um, office, Pacific Justice Center, in our environmental work, we forced some of the environmental violators to pay by means of uh, donating to environmental groups. And one of the environmental groups that we uh, forced a settlement to be paid to was the Willits Environmental Center. And so as I was traveling from Humboldt down to Mendocino County, and I kept getting word that the location had changed. And remember, this is like the days of old bag phones, not really good cell phone service or anything. Um, I stopped in at the Wilkes Environmental Center because the law enforcement uh, evidence tech was trying to tell me that I couldn't pick it up because I didn't have the order and that I had to have the order. And so I wound up stopping in at the Wilkes Environmental Center and asking to use their fax machine in those days uh, and got a copy of the uh, order um, to confirm that I, I had the date because that's what they were uh, 
whining about. Anyway, uh, it all worked out. And um, interestingly, years later, when I found out that the Supreme Court had upheld our uh, victory and before this evidence was picked up, um, I had at that point um, purchased uh, the old Shelter Cove Grotto in Redway and was in the process of transforming it into uh, the restaurant and music club that I opened called The Iguana. And in fact, when I called uh, into my home office for my messages one night as I'm knee deep in grease, cleaning up the disgusting kitchen that had been left over from the prior owner, uh, is how I found out that I had won the Supreme Court case because I had messages from the New York Times, the LA Times, and you know, every Chronicle, everybody. And uh, I, I, if people could have seen me, it was hilarious because I was like in ripped jeans with big long dish gloves with grease everywhere. And uh, that's how I found out that I was at the moment one of the you know, most uh, highly recognized attorneys in cannabis law at the moment. <laughs> it was pretty funny. And I had my microphone muted because I was laughing so much when you were describing that, but I love it. And I love that you shared that with us. This is exactly the kind of like um, personal image I was trying to paint of you today on the show. So I had no idea that you owned um, a music club called The Iguana. I think that is so cool. And is that still in existence in Redway? No. Or how long was I, it there for? Um, <laughs> so I, I actually, I did it because I, we needed, we had lost our last music venue up there, a uh, small venue up there. And uh, I tried to convince other friends to buy the property and do it. And nobody would. And finally, I just said, okay, screw it. I'll do it. And I had a history of uh, working in bars and restaurants and running them. And uh, in fact, when I moved to California, uh, before I got my first social work job, and actually even throughout my time working as a social worker, I continued to bartend and I bartended at comedy clubs. Uh, so a lot of the famous comedians now I knew when they were just starting out. Anyway, music club and restaurant, uh, the Iguana. Uh, after I left, it was sold to somebody who just kept it as a bar and kind of changed the whole vibe and then eventually got shut down. And now it's not even a uh, the building is still there, but it's not uh, operational as a you know, walk-in establishment. Anna, you are a hustler. I am loving learning this information. This is so great. You know, to work in the uh, restaurant industry, you really need to have a strong backbone, which you certainly have. And I feel like this is all just so interesting to learn about you. It's amazing. Um, I love hearing your story. And well, I let me just that... tell you one mother tidbit, actually, yes. and that yes. is that I've always said that the best preparation for me for being a lawyer were being a bartender and being a taxi cab driver, because you have to think fast on your feet. 
You have to know how to de-escalate situations, but you have to stand your ground. As a former bartender, I cannot agree with you more. I, you are absolutely speaking the truth. <laughs> I think those are words of wisdom. So I think that we should move to our topic on the veg modification. And before we do that, I just want to say thank you for sharing everything you shared about yourself. It's so interesting to get a full picture of you as a person. Um, and it I loved learning about the iguana. And that totally makes sense to me because you are not only a lawyer, but I can tell you really care deeply for our community. You do so much work here. Um, I'm sure beyond the scope of just your paid law cases. And it totally makes sense for me that you would open a music club just to give something to your community. So thank you for being such a wonderful community member and doing so much for our cannabis community up here. So moving on to like a way less fun topic here, unfortunately, um, is the vegetation modification letters that our cultivators in the cannabis program here have been re receiving in the mail. Um, not everyone, but some of them have received these letters. Um, I will let Hannah explain more about this, but from my understanding, it is um, a letter stating that this person has um, illegally removed ve vegetation or trees and that they have a 15 day window to respond or they will be removed from the program. Um, this was taking place around, I believe, the end of February February and beginning of March. So obviously that's very concerning. And I will let Hannah give you a more nuanced explanation of what exactly is occurring and what is being said in these letters. Sure. So actually the VegMod letters uh, started on February 15th, although some issues regarding vegetation modification have been being uh, disputed and discussed in the context of certain files for quite some time. For example, I have a client who was put on an annual renewal hold last summer, and I have been disputing the basis for the renewal hold uh, that the department believes mm, was a illegal removal of trees for the purpose of uh, developing a cannabis cultivation site. And I have, we have provided proof that it, a, it wasn't uh, developed for that purpose and uh, all kinds of other stuff. But anyway, these veg mod letters uh, recently were going to predominantly applicants, although I've also seen some additional ones come out to people who have uh, renewals as they're renewal, renewing, and I suspect will be coming out to potentially other people who have who were in good standing or had portal complete or something of the sort. Because really, the cannabis program, after uh, five years of this permitting program, uh, is all of a sudden determining that the level of review concerning the issues related to vegetation, and I'm gonna go through what those are, need to be uh, screened again and at a level, an evidentiary level that is not specified in the ordinance. 
So these letters ask, they actually don't, and this is very interesting because they do not accuse the person of an illegal modification or tree removal of a protected species. They just identify or claim that they're identifying areas of concern. And then they demand that uh, within 15 days of receipt of the letter that the person provide very, very detailed information and particularly uh, require a licensed professional uh, forester, arborist to provide the specific identification of the species that needed to be renewed at, uh, removed if it if it was and um, when it was removed and for what reason. Interestingly, after the letters came out in some subsequent public meetings, um, the director of the cannabis department explained that from her perspective, a licensed professional coming in now to identify the species or document the reason for the removal would be inappropriate. Uh, or not accepted, in fact. I am gonna go ahead and, and give the background on what the ordinance actually says, and then I'll talk about what I believe is, is really wrong with the letters themselves, as well as the burden that they're putting on the applicants. But I just wanna say, that this is a dynamic situation and it's something that um, had the department come at this from um, a way of working with the applicants to find the information in a less aggressive manner. And when I say aggressive, not only was it within 15 days, you have to provide the satisfactory information or you will be denied. But in addition, uh, the level of proof, which has never ever been enunciated and is not in fact in the plain language of the ordinance at all. So um, that's kind of the, the overall of the letter. Uh, would you like me to go into the what the ordinance actually prohibits and allows? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would love that. Okay, so the ordinance has a number of sections that are relevant to vegetation. One is the one that we're all kind of, you know, been used to talking about, which is tree removal, the prohibition on tree removal. And really, there's a couple of important things about the provisions regarding tree removal. One is that there are additionally protected species that are in addition to the standard species that are protected under state law, uh, natural resources law uh, that people would normally know or understand are protected uh, and be accused if they removed without the proper permit or exemption um, they would be accused of illegal conversion. So there's that list, and, and that's actually a two-part list, the state list. But then in addition, 
And this is something that people really didn't pay attention to much to the language of the ordinance. And so things like tan oaks, which traditional foresters would feel is important invasive to, uh, species potentially to thin out and, and remove. Uh, but from the perspective of our ordinance for cultivation permit, tan oaks and other oak species are protected as well. So that's one thing. The other thing is, is that it really depends on A, did you remove any of the protected species for purposes of developing a cultivation site? B, did you, if you did, was it before the ordinance was effective, which is May 4th, 2017, or was it after? If it was after, and it was for the purpose of developing a cultivation site, then you are going to be denied, period. It is an absolute prohibition. However, if it was before, and you did not have the correct conversion permit like a three acre conversion permit or some other valid exemption that is established, then the department will refer it to the resource agencies for them to review and decide whether or not the impact of that removal was less than significant and whether sufficient mitigation measures were uh, in place. And that less than significant language probably sounds familiar to people, sounds like CEQA language. And in some ways it is CEQA language, but in other ways, this is a separate analysis with respect to this particular issue. So people are, you know, have gotten confused about, you know, why am I looking at less than significant impact again? And again, this is only for people who develop cultivation sites after they remove trees, but before the effective date of the ordinance, and then you would look at that issue. There's another separate whole section of the ordinance that deals with vegetation, and that has to do with, for a number of years, I advocated for the county to allow people to have immature plant areas separate from their cultivation sites, I'm sorry, separate from their canopy areas and allow it to not count towards the canopy total. And eventually the Board of Supervisors agreed and agreed to modify the ordinance to allow for that. So then basically it parallels the state, but the county added in another requirement and that is that any new immature plant area or any immature plant area that is separate from the canopy area, not counted towards the canopy total, cannot be put on area that has where the ground has not already been disturbed. And so that's an entirely separate issue that's not a basis for denial necessarily. Uh, I mean, I suppose if you do it and you don't uh, change the location, if you were unaware of that, then you would be denied. But it's not the same kind of automatic denial with the protected tree removal, if that is proved. The problem with all of this 
is that number one, there has never been clear, consistent, um, articulated rules regarding what you need as proof, what the exact process is, and certainly not effective education on any of this. Obviously, it is the applicant's responsibility to adhere to the ordinance no matter what, whether it's been effectively communicated or not. And I don't disagree with that. However, given the iterations of the department and the turnover of the staff and the different stop and start of the processes and people having been in some cases renewed multiple times under their annual permit, it is an unfortunate approach that the department is now taking uh, with this kind of big fist or hammer coming down in such an extreme way when there really hasn't been an organized, effective manner of enforcing the provisions of the ordinance. And finally, and this is the most important part, is the level of evidence that's being required now, in my determination, is not supported by the ordinance. And, and the corollary is, if you look at the ordinance's detailed provisions regarding proof of prior cultivation and the explicit types of evidence that are enumerated as what would be acceptable, then you can say, hey, when they want to be specific about what is required, they certainly have the ability to do it and they certainly did do it. With respect to the level of evidence required in these issues, the for tree removal of protected species or whether it was for the purpose of developing a cultivation site or whether it was before or after the ordinance effective date or whether there was ground disturbance in an immature plant area, all of those issues. There is no specific enunciation of a level of proof. And in fact, in public meetings, the director has essentially revealed as myself and Jason Horst and Lauren Mendelson, two other attorneys who are collaborating with me on this issue, have since the beginning felt is this is an evidentiary matter and it requires an evidentiary hearing before somebody could be denied. And so that's really our position is the level of evidence that's being required and particularly the time after five years that it's being required in with the threat of denial, as well as the manner in which the determination is made, all requires a greater <laughs> level of due process that's not actually uh, so far been communicated. Now, with that said, I want to say that since myself and Jason and Lauren wrote our legal memo to the county informing them of our belief uh, that due process requires 
these things to be dealt with differently. We have not seen a single denial. Now, it may be that we're not aware of it. Um, it could be that there's been somebody who's been denied for this basis, but so far that's not what we've seen. So we're hoping that that means that they are taking to heart what we presented. Um, I'm still disturbed that they are sending out additional veg mod letters with the same language. It's very unfortunate. And in some cases, people have been receiving responses after they've submitted materials that essentially don't deny the, the, the folks, which is great, but give them kind of a devil's bargain, which is if you move your, if you if you don't include that area of concern, and again, despite the fact that it may not have been proven by MCD that there was a violation, but MCD is saying if you if you don't include that area, then you can continue forth, and that's a devil's bargain because on the one hand, and for some people it might be worth it. Don't spend the time fighting it, just make sure you're, you're doing it in a, a new area that doesn't create new ground disturbance if it's for immature plants and certainly doesn't require any removal of any protected trees, et cetera. And certainly be aware of the fact that you're going to need, you know, in some cases, a, a biological survey to make sure that you're not creating more than a less than significant impact by some new development. But for some people, maybe that's worth it. For other people, though, if there is no other area that's appropriate, then this is a devil's bargain. Because aren't they entitled to a greater level of evidentiary hearing on the issue before they're forced into giving up on the area that they've always cultivated on? And in cases where there are renewals and potentially even in cases, uh, actually, I would say definitely in cases where they've been inspected for years and this issue has never presented a problem. Certainly, it seems that the MCD's singular determination based on its own decision of what it believes is necessary to prove the things that need to be proved is is just not not proper due process. I'm going to pause there. That was a lot. No, it's very informative. Thank you. Yeah, I have to say, uh, you know, in preparation for this show, I was going through and reading letters written by farmers who had received these um, veg modification letters. Um, these were letters written for public comment for Board of Supervisors meeting on the 2nd of March. And my heart really goes out to these cultivators. I mean, the level of distress that people are expressing um, that they're experiencing as a result of receiving these letters is like heartbreaking. People have been in this process for so long. They're maxed out. They're broke. They're like at the end of their ropes here trying to continue their businesses. And then something like this comes out of the blue. And with this very short time window, like 15 days, or you're going to get kicked out of the, you know, cannabis program forever is really unreasonable to me personally. So I have to say, yeah, I'm I, so glad. I have to say. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Go. 
Well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and one of the things that I've been, you know, having to deal with, not only in, in pushing all other work aside to, to still do our best to provide the level of evidence needed, uh, even if I disagree with the, the level of evidence that is being claimed to be needed, you know, I still feel an obligation to do my best for my clients. So aside from pushing the work aside, every day having long discussions with these cultivators that have done their best. And and two two of these vegetation cases, I, I have to say, one was a very public letter that I've already submitted where the, the dead trees are still there and the aerial imaging that the county used just wasn't sophisticated enough to zoom in and and see the little dead trees. And, you know, that's kind of outrageous. These people have intentionally not removed dead trees that are unsafe because they were too terrified that if they did anything, um, that it would be interpreted wrong. In another case, I have somebody, and it's really ironic, Apparently, I I was rather prescient a bunch of years ago, and I wrote to the cannabis program at the time, as well as code enforcement, and explained the dilemma that this cultivator was in. They had gotten all their building permits before they even started cultivating. They had done everything right. CDF then made them do clearance for their buildings. Well, they tried to ask CDF to issue them a separate permit so that that, that this person wouldn't be accused of doing something wrong. And just by saying, oh yeah, it's Cal Fire clearance. And CDF basically said, no, we will not. That's not how we do things. It's not needed. This is required. And in fact, at the time, I told my client to file it anyway. And then CDF basically said, if you don't remove that permit request, then we won't sign off on your other stuff. So we have to actually withdraw it. So at the time, I wrote to the department, the cannabis department, and said, hey, we're in a catch-22. What do we need to do? What level of evidence is needed to document? And guess what? They never, ever determined that. And since then, they had renewed this annual permit multiple times. So these are the kinds of cases that MCD is focusing on. And I'm not doubting that there may be instances where people have done egregious things. I, I fully support legitimately winnowing out the people who have done egregious environmental violations. But particularly in these fire intensive times, to not allow people to take advantage of the written specific exemption in our ordinance for fire safety. Um, is is insane and to require so many years later evidence that was never 
delineated as being required to be able to establish that legitimate exemption or any other legitimate reason why the prohibition doesn't apply is is it's it's crazy it's really stressful you're right that's yeah, those... the main point is that every day these people are are, are freaking out that they're going to lose their business after so many years of trying to do it right yeah, and those stories that you just shared it's like the whole situation is so confusing no one knows what they're supposed to do and then it seems as though it hasn't really been figured out on the county's end what they would like to be presented as evidence. So like you said, a catch 22, where are people really supposed to go with this? You know, my heart breaks for those people you described as getting their building permits before they even started, because who even does that? Like they were going above and beyond and then basically almost being punished for that. Um, it's heartbreaking. But anyway, we have someone on the line um, who is calling in and I'm being told that they were a recipient of one of these badge modification letters. So if you're all right with that, Hannah, I'd love to put them through and just see what they have to say about their experience. Is that all right? Yeah, of course. All right, cool. Well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to put that caller through. So if you are here with us, caller, are you on the air? Yes, ma'am, I am. Great. Hello, my Thanks name is so Brandon. much for calling in. Laytonville, California. Uh, I'd like to first thank Hannah Nelson for the good fight that she does. Uh, you know, we got sent one of the letters, and we also went through the Cal Fire uh, situation. And basically, uh, we had already been approved. I had fire come up, you know, after we got sent the letter. We had two weeks, so I ran around and got everything done. I talked to Hannah Nelson shortly. We We gathered a meeting. We had a bunch of people come together, and we've all been just, you know, distressed for over a month about the same vegetation modification. When I presented my uh, paperwork, which, you know, entailed PG&E, uh, arborist, and specifics on trees, and the CAL FIRE conditions of approval letter, I was sure that we were going to be, you know, wiped right off. But, indeed, the county came back and said that we were uh, ineligible because of vegetation modification, that Cal Fire and the, the county uh, basically told us that we had to do, you know. One of our flats, we have two gardens. One of them was still allowed to go through with the portal, but uh, there's vegetation modification that currently needs to go on on that site as well. And we had Cal Fire and Leggett Fire come out. They indicated that we're in a very fire, high fire danger zone with the chimney and we all, with two chimney stacks and two draws that run up our, our ravine, and we need additional fire support. You know, we need... Uh, you know, further distancing. Um, but we've done everything, you know, that we've been asked to do, provided them with all the stuff, and then just to be turned down and then given us uh, just a 10A17, um, I believe it's an M and T, which is the section codes. And it's just very frustrating. I, I think that it's kind of a contradicting thing for Cal Fire to, uh, to give us a condition of approval in the county uh, cannabis department say, hey, you know, you have to get CAL FIRE approval first. CAL FIRE approval requires such clearance. We did clearance around our home and our permitted structures, and, you know, which is required. Um, and CAL FIRE, the captain, everybody is on our side. They say they don't understand what, what, the, dish, what the issue is and that they, you know, stand with us in solidarity, but that doesn't seem to make a difference to the Mendocino County Cannabis Program. So, we're just, we're thankful for you, Hannah, and everybody else on the fight involved, and uh, it is real, and uh, 
uh, from what I heard, they've already, you know, wiped off about half the people they got sent the letter. So um, thank you so much, and uh, I appreciate it. I'm going to hold my time. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And Hannah, did you, do you have anything to say in response or do you have a question or otherwise we will continue on and call her? I just want to thank you so much for calling in. Your letter was actually one of the ones I was reading last night. So I really appreciate hearing from you. Yes. Caller, can you just tell us whether you were denied? No, I think that caller has jumped off the air. Um, but I did not, okay, I did not personally gather that, um, that he was denied yeah, and, and reading his. That's an important, important thing that I'm trying to assess from different situations is so far as I understand it, people have not been denied, but been told that they can't, you know, that again, that's kind of the devil's choice that I'm, um, I referred to earlier that they have to, you know, they can't cultivate where they indicated that's what I understand, but. Yes. Um, so Hannah, do you know about how many people have received these letters? Do we have any numbers around that? Uh, the exact count? No, I don't. I believe uh, that it was reported out some weeks ago that I think it was 36 people initially received it. And I don't know the total of how many since then uh there there is the weekly meeting tomorrow morning so that's certainly something that uh somebody could ask if if they want yes okay 36 interesting all right well we are sort of in the last few moments that was the original group i i know that there have been some since then okay okay um, and is it true that people, once they receive these letters, their portal access is paused or halted and they can't access their portal process anymore? That's another question that's coming up for me. Okay, so it seems like yes. this caller has called back. He said he wasn't denied, but is also not eligible going forward. Um, that is a message he just sent to the station. So okay. there's that information. Okay. Um, yes, um, they are, you, they oh, are ahead. in the, the, the portal access is, is if they were supposed to submit through the portal, again, renewals don't go through the portal, at least at this point, uh, if they were supposed to go through the portal, then, uh, they are pulled out of that process. If they get a veg mod letter in one of my, uh, cases, they were after we submitted response they were told that they could go back into the portal system but again were presented with this devil's bargain as long as you don't uh as long as you modify your site plan and don't cultivate in these areas again after a determination made by the department but without uh, I believe sufficiently looking at all of the evidence or at the level of evidence that should be looked at. All right. So we have just two minutes left here for our show today. Is there any um, last little tidbits that you want to share around the veg mod letters? Um, from what I'm understanding here, um, multiple folks are working to advocate for uh, better due process with the county. 
and the situation is in flux. And certainly um, we will continue to bring this, bring you, our listeners, um, up-to-date information on this issue on the Cannabis Hour and possibly other shows on KZYX as well. But is there any um, last little thing you want to say about that, Hannah? Yeah, it would be helpful if uh, people, uh, you know, we do we do want to try and track this. And I urge everybody, if you haven't already become a member of MCA, Medicinal Cannabis Alliance, to do so. But even if you're not a member, if you would send an email, info at mendocannabis.com, uh, and just explain what your situation is or just say wh- whether you got a letter, whether you were a portal applicant or a renewal applicant, whether you have been denied, whether you um, are being put back into whatever process, whether the portal or renewal, but told not to cultivate in certain areas of concern that were identified by MCD, whether you uh, missed the deadline altogether or whether you were not able to gather the evidence that you needed. Um, That information would be really helpful for us to track so we can understand what's going on. So again, the email address is info at mendocannabis.com. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and sharing a bit about yourself at the beginning of the show. I really appreciated learning about you. We are at the end of our time here today, but I'll be back two weeks from today with another episode of the Cannabis Hour for you. Stay tuned and have a beautiful day. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.